Like that has killed close to 230,000 Americans and new record surges of COVID-19. They're hitting 90,000 a day in the United States. Donald Trump's closing campaign argument is this. It's all overblown. It's as if he's unaware of the hard numbers. Donald Trump is barnstorming key states, repeating that the COVID corner has been turned and no one will talk about the pandemic after November 4th as if COVID is a political attack ad and not a deadly virus. Will this message help give Donald Trump a second term? What else can he do to win? Let's find out. Joining us now is the former White House press secretary to President Donald Trump. He was also the communications director and chief strategist for the Republican National Committee and the author of a new book, Leading America, President Trump's Commitment to People, Patriotism and Capitalism, Sean Spicer. Sean Spicer, great to have you on the program. Uh, Donald Trump is behind in the polls. If people believe the polls, what does he have a path to victory right now, Sean Spicer? Absolutely. I mean, remember, at the end of the day, this is a, a election about electoral votes in each state. He was behind in the polls, and he frankly didn't win the popular vote last time. The question is, can he get to three, 270? He won 306 electoral votes last time, so he actually has 36 that he could shed and still get to 270. Um, but I think on election night, he needs to hold those key East Coast swing states, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, and then Pennsylvania eventually. If he loses any four of those, I think it's going to be almost impossible, uh, but definitely a huge challenge to win the election. He's got a pretty baffling closing message from the Canadian point of view, and I know you spent eight months as his press secretary, but from the Canadian point of view, he seems to be not telling the truth or flat out lying about the, the pandemic. You know, he's admitted on tape he downplayed the severity to Bob Woodward. He's now telling Americans they've rounded the corner, a vaccine is weeks away. He says on November 4th, no one's going to talk about it. But you and I both, there were 90,000 cases in the past week, record number of cases, 230,000 Americans dead. How does he justify rhetoric that doesn't seem to have a relationship to reality? Well, I, I mean, look, I, I, again, it's it's not my job now to communicate his thoughts. I mean, that's that's the White House and the campaign. Uh, so what I would say is, you know, he has got to figure out what what how he wants to communicate what his team is doing about eradicating COVID and where they are in terms of vaccines. I, honestly, that's not something I'm obviously in the loop on, but I think I think. COVID is becoming more and more of an issue for a while there in August and September. The riots and the looting uh, allowed law and order to really get to the top of the agenda. That was good for the Trump campaign. But as COVID comes back in, you know, and, and the president himself had to struggle with it, I think that changes the game a bit. How he deals with it in the final end will, will have an impact on, on where I think he ultimately gets the vote. Because had it not been for COVID with the economy that he had, I, I think he would have easily been reelected. Again, you're not part of the campaign now, but you were. When you heard that Donald Trump told Bob Woodward, look, I'm going to downplay this. There's new tapes of Jared Kushner says he's taken on the doctors. And he just said this past week, other than the fake news that wants to scare everybody, we're absolutely rounding the corner. He knows that's not true. Dr. Fauci knows that not, that's not true. Like, was there any pushback inside saying, Mr. President, you're not telling the truth? Did that ever happen inside the White House? And, and what was his response? Well, okay, so, I, you know, one of the things that's important to understand is that there's, and again, I'm not privy to the conversations about what information the president gets and doesn't get uh, with respect to the virus. I see the case counts, obviously, um, and obviously we as a country uh, and individual states are dealing with COVID. It's still impacting us. There's a difference between, um, you know, 
patently misstating a fact and being optimistic and spinning the truth. Every politician, probably everywhere in the world, spins the facts to their side or, you know, creates an optimistic idea of where we are. You know, if you ask, I, I mentioned this to another uh, colleague yesterday. I think the president is by nature a marketer and an optimist. And I think that that's kind of what he's conveying. Hey, we're going to beat this thing. We're rounding the corner. We're weeks away from the vaccine. Um, that, that's that's who he's always been. But there's a, di I mean, to be fair, I get political spin. There's a difference between spin and flat out lies when it comes to, to case counts, death count, telling people that you're rounding the curve, not encouraging people to wear masks. And again, when Dr. Fauci is saying that's super dangerous, th those, but, l l and, and you know he's, he, he doesn't tell the truth on a lot of things. Go ahead. Okay, but, but here's the thing. This is where I, I have a problem with some of the, I, I, the president may not have been the best example of, of mask wearing, but I don't think he's ever said, don't wear a mask. Uh, that, and that, so let's be clear. I, I think that there are things that I would have advised the White House from a visual standpoint um, when it comes to COVID that would have made sense. In other words, there are things that you do as a leader that, you know, you do because you want to project the right thing to do or the right behavior. I think the, the White House definitely could have done that better. But I think to say that he didn't encourage, you know, he told people not to wear a mask, to quote you, is a patently, is patently false. Uh, to, to be fair, he's literally telling people COVID, COVID, no one's going to talk about it on November 4th. But let's just move. Okay, the pandemic is one thing. This is the thing. And this is where Go you ahead. were asking. We have we have this problem with American journalists as well. Is you said something? You said he encourages people not to wear a mask. That's not true, Sean. If you want to look, if I'd be delighted to spend all morning talking about Donald Trump's factual lies and whether there have been times where he said I don't wear a mask, right? Sometimes he changes his view. You know That's that, and I know that. Sense. You you You're know. I mean, if you want, if you on, want Evan. to just pick and choose, Sean, you know that. But come on, let's be no, fair. No, 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 the no. guy has Hold no on, relationship Evan. to the truth on fundamental issues, including the virus. See, you want to hold Trump to a standard, but then no one else is held to the same standard. If we want to talk about the truth, then let's talk about it and let's hold everyone to that same standard. But of course, there are multiple examples of the president not encouraging people to wear masks either in person or at his rallies. Check this out. This is voluntary. I don't think I'm going to be doing it. I don't agree with the statement that if everybody wear a mask, everything disappears. And as you know, masks cause problems too. Maybe they're great and maybe they're just good. Maybe they're not so good. Can I ask you, how, again, I'm trying to understand strategy. You're a strategist yeah. in, for Canadians. Donald Trump is accusing Joe Biden of corruption. You know, the, the, the allegations on the laptop, whether it's Ukraine or China. Uh, it's, it's, I'm just trying to understand strategically, why would a guy who has never released his tax returns, and Joe Biden has, so we know his money, where Donald Trump's two sons promised to run the business and not be involved in politics. They're his chief political surrogates. Donald Trump hired his son-in-law and his daughter who are still profiting from their business. I mean, it goes on and on. 14 Trump aid donors have been indicted or in prison. Why would he want to make corruption and family conflicts a key campaign issue? It seems self-defeating, doesn't it? I just, I do not understand yeah. that strategy. Look, I, I think because, uh, you know, to be blunt, I think you want to level the playing field and say, take an issue off the table, right? Which is, there, are, there is, I mean, I, I think that's an embarrassment what the U.S. media has been doing as, in coordination with big tech with respect to this Hunter Biden thing. I don't know. I'm not, I, I honest to God don't know, you know, what's, what's, what's um, I don't know, true or not, if you will, with in terms of the laptop, I haven't examined it. But I will say this, there's enough evidence to come out. And clearly this gentleman, uh, Bobo who's come out, has recordings and other things that 
you know, he's he's a former naval officer with the, one of the highest security clearances this country grants, and yet our media and and big tech have censored it. You've got to ask yourself why why is that happening? But is that and, real, is that true? I, let, let me just say something because I haven't seen the laptop either. But right. the the evidence is one. Bobolinsky had one email that talked about the big guy. We don't know if it refer. They allege it refers to Joe Biden. No one's seen this laptop. Even people at the New York Post didn't want to be part of it. The ev even even the, the the evidence was lost in the mail. Like throwing out sort of conspiracy theories to level the playing like field. Is right. that what it's come to? I'm just I'm trying to figure no, out. Is that what it's come to? I don't disagree with some of your analysis, but the funny thing is, where was the same skepticism and concern when the Steele dossier came out unverified and yet CNN and BuzzFeed and other places ran with it as gospel truth? To be fair, this conspiracy theory about the, the, the media's the victimizing the right. Um, it's not again, a conspiracy theory. It's true. Well, to be fair, uh, on, first of all, on the Mueller investigation, there was there was a series of investigations that were followed very factually. To be the the allegations about corruption against Joe Biden, we have seen you have seen very little. Why would that that be elevated to become a major campaign issue unless there was more verifiable truth? I haven't seen the the laptop. You haven't seen it. Very few people have seen it. Why? How can anyone report on something other than being innuendo and allegation as a form of political strategy. I, I think that's a great, I, I, you and I are on the same page on that, but then apply that same standard to the Steele dossier and say, here you had unverified by the intelligence agency saying that it was literally unverified, uncorroborated. There is a double standard, and that is right. not a question of, if you want to talk about fairness, there is no right. question. There is a different standard when it comes to the right in Donald Trump and when it comes to the left in Joe Biden. All right, I got to leave it there, Sean Spicer. Thanks so much. That is Sean Spicer, the former press secretary to President Donald Trump. Coming up on this show, what is the path to victory for Joe Biden and for Donald Trump? What should you be watching for right now to understand the race to the White House? The senior editor at The Atlantic, David Frum, and MSNBC host Ali Velshi are here to break down the campaign strategies and what you need to know. Stay right here with Question Period. We're making that turn. You know that, right? We're going to have the vaccine anyway, with or without it. We're making the turn. He suggested the doctors were inflating the numbers. Catch this, because doctors get more money. What in the hell is the matter with this man? A thousand doctors and nurses have given their lives trying to save lives. In the final days of the campaign, Joe Biden is ahead in some key polls, but will that lead hold? Will the polls be trustworthy? Both Donald Trump and Joe Biden are crisscrossing key states like Michigan, Florida, North Carolina, Texas, Pennsylvania. What is the path to victory for each of them, and what should you be watching for? There could be wild cards, mail-in ballots, allegations of corruption, good economic news, surging cases of COVID. Anything could change this. There could be a sharp turn. To break it all down, we're joined now by the senior editor of The Atlantic Magazine, the author of two books about Donald Trump, David Frum. Great to see you, David. And joining Thank us you. is the host of Velshi on MSNBC, Ali Velshi. Great to see you as well, two Canadians living in the United States. Uh, Ali, I just got to start with you. Um, Obviously, this is the final days of the campaign. What are you watching for, and what are the issues that are emerging as decisive? 
Well, look, we've had so many people uh, vote already. Uh, this is not, the polls don't tell you as much as the turnout does. Uh, so what we're watching for, particularly on Tuesday, is what that turnout looks like. Remember, most people who support Donald Trump have said that they would rather vote in person. That's number one. Two is the path to victory. At this point, it is very, very narrow, but not non-existent for Donald Trump. There are ways that he can win, and almost all roads to 270 electoral votes for Donald Trump lead through right where I am right now in Pennsylvania. Uh, he is in Pennsylvania a lot. Uh, he, he has spent more time here in addition to the other states that he's in that he wouldn't normally have to be spending as much time to shore up his defenses. So uh, Joe Biden's got a bigger map. He's got more possibilities, but it is not sealed for Joe Biden right now. Donald Trump has an uphill but possible way to reelection. All right, David, what are you watching for? What are the telling signals uh, for you in these final days of this campaign? What's happening in 2020 is the most spectacular democratic event in the history of the United States. Um, of the 330 million human beings who live in the United States, probably about 160 million will vote. Nothing like that has ever been seen before. When you hear these numbers about voter participation in the past, those are of registered voters. But of actual human beings living in the United States, nearly half, or maybe all, exactly half, will vote, including, and that is un unheard of. Um, the bigger the turnout, the more accurate the polls become, because uh, we tend to poll the population of the United States or guess that who are likely voters. Um, but the more you, the more people who actually show up, the more the you don't have to do those judgment calls, and the more the polls predict what's going to come. And I think I, my attention now is not focused so much on voting day as the day after. Because I think we're heading to a situation in which, as Ali said, there, there are a number of theoretical scenarios where Donald Trump could eke it out in the Electoral College, but there's no scenario where he doesn't lose the vote by 10, 12, 15, or as many as 16 million votes to Joe Biden. And so the question we're going to be wrestling with in the event of one of these narrow path events that Ali described is what does it mean if someone claims the presidency of the United States in the face of such an overwhelming repudiation by the people of the United States? But, Ali, they've done that. I just want uh, Canadians to understand that. The Electoral College does not align at all with the popular vote. And this is a, something that's been widely criticized. Correct. Canadians don't necessarily understand that. We have, of course, Elections Canada, a central body to run everything. Each state is running things. Each state's got a different process. So it, it could get very messy, as, as David just said. So, you know, calibrating what David said, what are you looking for on that final day between mail-in, turnout, allegations of voter fraud? How does this play out? All of the above, right? We're going to have court filings. We're going to have injunctions. We're going to have, very, we've seen very long uh, lineups for voting, not just in Georgia and places where we're typically used to seeing them, particularly as it relates to African-American voters. New York City's got uh, massive lineups for, for voting. So first of all, we're going to see a lot of legal activity on Tuesday night. I'll be in Pennsylvania. I'll be in Philadelphia in particular where we're expecting some of that to happen. Then there are court cases about when ballots can be accepted until because uh, many of them have been mailed in. Most people are saying if you haven't cast your ballot by now, please don't mail it. Uh, but some people have. And, and in Pennsylvania, for instance, the current ruling, which could change, is that they will have until Friday 
Friday after the election to receive ballots and count them. So in close states, we may be counting for several days. Uh, what happens in that instance where we, we don't have a declared winner or we've got a, a state like Michigan or Pennsylvania, which might be pivotal, and we don't know what's going to go on? One of the things that these cities are bracing for, including Philadelphia, where I am, is, uh, is violence, unrest, things like that. Walmart has taken guns out of its displays right. so that if its stores get uh, broken into or looted, nobody can go to them. The National Guard is here in Philadelphia as we speak. There are contingency plans for that. So in addition to the political dissatisfaction with the idea that Donald Trump may win the election without winning the popular vote, Again, we have we have had a summer of discontent in the United States, and there are a lot of people anxious and, and angry and armed in this state. So I'm going to be in this country. So I'm going to be watching for that as well. David, let, let me pull back a bit to the final messages here, because, you know, and, and we Donald Trump's two messages. Maybe he's got three. One, COVID's not a big deal. It's going to round that we're rounding the corner. It's over. And Joe Biden is corrupt, and that's been a huge issue to certain for his base. Yeah. Joe Biden's message is uh, Donald Trump's bungled COVID, but then you've got surging economic news that Donald Trump is trumpeting. So, how do you compare and contrast their final message, and what is actually connecting, David? Well, as you said, Donald Trump had those two messages. COVID is overhyped um, and uh, Biden is bad or Biden's son is bad. He's had a third message, which is all of this is terribly, terribly unfair to me. Um, uh, Biden's message is it's time for a change. Um, and that's uh, that's always the message of the challenger. Um, there has been economic recovery, but let's just keep this in perspective. The, the United States has had a good um, third quarter. As But if you compare the American economy today the American economy exactly a year ago, November of, of uh, 2019. The American economy today is three and a half points smaller than the American economy of the end of 2019. So what does that mean? At the bottom of the financial crisis of 2009, the American economy was three and a half points smaller than it had been at the, at the previous peak. Back in 2009, we thought that was a pretty big hole. The American economy has been climbing up and up and up. And where is it? It's back where it was in the worst recession since the Great Depression. So I don't think Trump is much of an economic message. Um, he's got hope and vaporware. All right. What about this, Ali, the corruption message? Uh does that stuff connect, or is that a Hail Mary pass well, of desperation? No, no, it doesn't. And that's, that's the issue, that even in 2016, the message did connect because a, a lot of the mainstream media was, uh, was trying to figure out what was behind the story and was asking Hillary Clinton questions about it. Um, now we're a little better at verifying or figuring out that things aren't verified. But the bigger problem is that the people who are supporting uh, Donald Trump, and I've been on the road, as you know, for the last two months, and I'll be on the road again this weekend, they're not getting their news from The Atlantic and they're not getting their news from MSNBC. They're not hearing uh, nuanced and reasonable debates about uh, this point of view on a, on a topic or another point of view on a topic. They're getting fed their news by Fox and by a, a lot of conservative and somewhat conspiratorial media. So it doesn't matter. The, the people who are voting for Trump are hearing that Joe Biden is corrupt and gets his money from Ukraine and China and all that kind of stuff. And the folks who aren't consuming that news are not hearing that story all that well or are hearing it uh, being debunked. So that's part of the problem here. Uh, there aren't a lot of people to convince. As you and I discussed the other day, there's no, there's, there aren't really that many undecided 
percentage. We've heard anywhere from two to five percent. I don't even believe that's true. People are dug in at this point. It's going to come down to are you motivated enough by Joe Biden or Donald Trump to go to the polls? And I will say this to you. The people who have tasted flesh by electing Joe Biden, uh, by electing Donald Trump, who is different from any conservative who has run in American politics or any Republican who's run in American politics for the last uh, for the last several decades, they're not giving that up. They may be more motivated to vote than we think. So there may be very, very big voter turnout, pro-Trump voter turnout on Tuesday. And I think Democrats uh, are in danger of underestimating how big that might be. Yeah, David, just talk about that. We talk about these tiny yeah. margin of, of, of Americans who are, quote, undecided, 2%, 5%. And I, Ali and I were talking about this. It feels like who's undecided at this point? It feels like you're drinking 22 yeah. beers out of a 2-4. And you say, you know what? I don't know if I like beer. Give me the last two. I mean, who yeah. doesn't know by now? Well, that's, I want to say something. I just One thing has to be said about the way you phrased the last question. We have two decades of tax disclosures by Joe Biden and many years of his Senate disclosures through almost all of his career in the Senate. Um, Joe Biden was one of the two or three poorest senators. We know everything we need to know about Joe Biden's finances. And the idea that Donald Trump, who is the most corrupt president in American history, and so corrupt that at this point, I don't think you can even mention any runner up who is taking bribes in a hotel on caddy corner to the White House, um, the idea that he would make that his issue, it's, it's as if he made physical health and wellness his issue. I mean, this is also, you know, it's just absurd. Um, on, on to this point about mobilization, you are absolutely right. The story of the Trump years has been competing mobilizations. Um, the Republicans, in 2018, the congressional election that was such a disaster for Republicans, Republican candidates for Congress together got as many votes in 2018 as they had got in their successful election of 2010. It's just that Democrats got 9 million votes even more than that. So Trump has energized something we have, we, the American voter, in a, or his voters, in a way never before seen. Um, it's just that there are fewer of those than the voters who dislike Donald Trump. And so Biden's potential for mobilization is, is vastly greater. Um, and the polls are putting the results right now at about Biden at about a little over 50, Trump at about 42. Um, I, I don't think it's I think it's not going to be possible for Trump to catch up. I and mean, we are on our way to a massive popular vote result. And the question is, does the American electoral system reflect the American popular vote? Guys, it's going to be a fascinating night, maybe a fascinating week, maybe longer. I don't know. Uh, Ali Velshi from MSNBC, David Frum from The Atlantic. Guys, stay safe, stay well, and we'll talk again next week. Thanks, guys. Coming up on this program, who would be better for Canada, Trump or Biden? Trump comes with tariffs. Biden promises to kill Keystone XL. To break it all down, former Canadian ambassador to the United States, Gary Dewar, joins us. And so does the former U.S. ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman. Stay right here with Question Period. Canada treated us badly. 287% tariff. Can you believe that? Think of it. I learned about that. I said, it's time to get out of that crazy NAFTA. NAFTA was a terrible thing. So before his bromance with President Trump burned off and descended into insults and tariffs, Justin Trudeau was once known as the Trump whisperer. That, of course, is long gone. But the prime minister also has a close relationship with Joe Biden, who came to Ottawa for a visit in his final weeks as the vice president. But Biden also poses some challenges. He promises to cancel the Keystone XL pipeline, although it's well under construction, and he's openly advocated for Buy American. So who would be better for Canada? Let's dig into that. Joining me now, former Canadian ambassador to the United States, Gary Dewar, and the former U.S. ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman. Ambassadors, 
Great to have both of you here. I'm going to start with you, Ambassador Heyman, because you were there for that Biden visit. How would U.S.-Canada relations change if Joe Biden wins on Tuesday? Think of the U.S. as a ship right now pointing in the exact wrong direction and going the wrong way. Joe Biden will turn that ship around and set it in the right direction. And I would say three things. Joe Biden represents leadership, cooperation, and democracy. But overall, trust. And, and you know, trust is the critical component to having an ally, having a friend, and to working together. And it's going to be about trust. So I think it's going to be a refreshing moment if Joe Biden becomes the next president for Canada-U.S. relations. Boy, you are, you, are, you are going hard for Joe Biden there, Ambassador. Let me go to Ambassador Dewar. Uh, look, you know, uh, you, and you know better than anybody, a prime minister's office got to prepare for either side. Which administration would be more challenging for Canada on fundamental issues, sir? Would it be a Biden or a Trump administration? Well, they, uh, I think there's challenges and opportunities with both uh, to talk about uh, our, uh, Vice President Biden. Uh, we had a very good working relationship with him uh, when I was in Washington. Uh, I do think, uh, number one, his, his first priority will be COVID-19 and how do we uh, effectively uh, work on that together, I think will be an opportunity for Canada, both in terms of sharing uh, knowledge and also in terms of uh, uh, the supply chain, making it more reliable in our own North American neighborhood. Well, let, let me drill down on the energy issue, um, Ambassador Heyman, because this has been a big thing for um, Joe Biden. Um, for provinces like Alberta, Keystone XL pipeline is a big deal. Donald Trump approved it. Joe Biden said he'd cancel it. I understand the construction's well underway. Does that pose a threat? And does Joe Biden's, by American, does that pose a threat to Canada that maybe people are underestimating? So first and foremost, there, there are going to be issues that we will see differently from across the border, but it's about respect, honesty, and trust in negotiating and cooperating and finding paths to solutions. With regard to Canada, there is no larger supplier of energy to the United States outside of what we produce ourselves than Canada. And that's true with carbon-based and non-carbon-based energy that comes to the United States, hydro, uh, wind, and then, of course, what we buy from Canada, from Alberta. I am sure mm. that the Canadians will represent their perspective, and I know Joe Biden's team will listen and take that into consideration. Uh, Gary Dewar, what if uh, there's a second term of Donald Trump? Uh, we've already seen tariffs against steel and aluminum. They've already renegotiated the NAFTA. I understand that. Donald Trump does love to take swipes at Canada, and I don't know if his relationship with Justin Trudeau is warm and fuzzy anymore. What could another Trump term do? Uh, he is a marketer, uh, first, second, and third. Uh, the bumper sticker on getting a win is more important sometimes for him than the car, and uh, we know how to work with that. Uh, we've dealt with it before in the uh, renegotiation of the Canada, U.S., and Mexican trade agreement. Uh, we've dealt with it with other uh, possible disputes, for example, just recently with aluminum. So I do think we know how to work with him. Uh, he has a very competent trade ambassador. I hope he keeps him. Uh, Lighthouser, he's tough, and a lot of Canadians may not like him, 
uh, but he is effective, and I think he has the ear of the president. All right. Well, uh, it's going to be a fascinating night, gents. We'll find out if this thing's one night or maybe one month it will take. Uh, Ambassadors Heyman and Dewar, great to have both of you here. I know you guys know each other well, so thanks for connecting again. Coming up on this show, why are people of color dying of COVID-19 in such disproportionate numbers? And will the crisis be under control before Christmas? We're going to sit down with Canada's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Teresa Tam, next. Stay right here with Question Period. What we are living through is a horrific national tragedy. Families have lost loved ones, um, been devastated uh, by these tragedies. And we need to know uh, that there are more tragedies to come. A tragic landmark. More than 10,000 Canadians have lost their lives due to COVID-19. 10,000 people. That since the first death took place on March 8th at the Lynn Valley Long-Term Care Home in North Vancouver. But here's some new information. People of color in Canada are dying in far greater numbers than anyone imagined, according to a new report released by the Public Health Agency of Canada. So why are some groups more vulnerable to the disease than others? To find out, I sat down with Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Teresa Tam, earlier this week. Always good to see you, doctor. I hope you and your loved ones are doing well. Dr. Tam, uh, 10,000 deaths, 80% of them were elderly people. Most of them, of course, were in the um, long-term care home facilities. Now that we're in the second wave, considering all the precautions that we've taken, including in long-term care homes, uh, do you expect the second wave to have the same number of deaths as the first wave, or do you think the mortality rates will go down? Well, it's difficult to say, again, everything depends on what we do. I sincerely uh, hope that we're not going to repeat the um, tragedy that we have in the first wave in, as it pertains to long-term care facilities. What I would say is right now, uh, for a large number of the cases are still in the younger adults. Uh, but as we've seen in certain areas of the country, it's beginning to impact older uh, age groups. And it's difficult to shut out uh, this virus from entering um, the older age population. It's, it's really right. difficult to do. Let's talk about high-risk populations. You, you wrote in a report in the past week that people of color are more likely to contract COVID-19, uh, Middle Eastern, Black, Arab, Latin American, South American, Southeast Asian Canadians. More than 80% of the cases in a city like Toronto, they're barely 50% of the population. Is this an example, and you talk about economic inequities, is, is this an example of what some have called uh, systemic discrimination, or is it inequities? Why are those folks being so impacted? Well, I think there's different components as to why uh, different um, groups experiencing um, systemic inequities have been uh, highly impacted. One is that um, they are often uh, doing our essential services. So they can't stay at home, and uh, therefore there's in increased interactions with the general public or with patients if you're in healthcare, in agricultural sectors trying to put food on our tables. So they're essential workers who have to take public transport, carpool, and, and therefore at a higher risk than the rest uh, for uh, being exposed. They are in low wage, precarious job situations. 
where some have to hold down more than one job and therefore could potentially inadvertently spread um, amongst uh, their own community or in their uh, different uh, long-term care facilities, for example. They may be living in more crowded conditions because they have uh, poorer uh, housing supports. So um, what we mean by some of the structural or social determinants of health include housing, uh, include uh, income, include education and other uh, factors where people just haven't had this similar access uh, also to ser services, health services and other services, thereby leaving them at higher risk of contracting COVID-19 um, overall. Earlier last week, the CEO of the Business Council of Canada, Goldie Hyder, wrote a letter to the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister, and I'm going to quote what he said. He said, Canadians have grown increasingly frustrated by confusing and contradictory public health advice, causing some to lose faith in the system's ability to protect them. This cannot be left unaddressed. Dr. Tam, do you agree that the message has been confusing and contradictory, and that has led to mistrust? Well, in this stage in the pandemic, um, we are experiencing different uh, disease activity in different areas of the country. What public health has tried to do, and listening to uh, different sectors as well, is that we need to have a balance between um, you know, restricting um, um, and restrictive public health measures and opening up society. So public health is trying to get that balance so that we can have school, kids going back to school, we can have people going back to work without the virus transmission right. escalating out of control. Okay, L let me just talk about uh, testing and tracing. You have said we need to test, trace and isolate, but testing numbers are down. Contract tracing ha tracers have been overwhelmed. Sometimes we rely on the honor system for people to isolate because it's difficult to check up. Do governments and public health officials need to take more dramatic measures to curb the spread? France is going into another national lockdown. Do we need to do that? So at the beginning of the first wave, each uh, individual case only had a few contacts because we had much stricter public health measures. Now, if people don't help, public health is never going to keep up. It's not an infinite um, uh, capacity. So yes, we do have to escalate testing. So you've seen uh, more tests, uh, testing capacity come online, more uh, uh, point of care testing, for example, and more and more of these tests are being licensed, uh, approved by Health Canada and the federal government's putting in uh, uh, resources, putting in financial support. So those things are increasing capacity. I can't speak to why the numbers are necessary down at this time, probably because of some of the human resource capacity at the local level. But to be fair, Dr. Tam, people have done an incredible job for nine months. There is legitimate COVID fatigue. The Prime Minister has already said Christmas is in jeopardy. I'd love your view if, if you think Christmas is in jeopardy for visiting families. You know, what do you say to people who just are, I, I understand you're saying you got to keep listening. They're not. They're breaking bubbles. Uh, it's changing. That's why we're in the second wave. What has to, something's got to change in the message because if the message doesn't change, you're going to get less compliance. What do you think needs to change right now? This is a road that we must travel. There is, there is, this is a path that we have to keep going on and we need that second win. Now, how do we do that? Is actually one, make it a sustainable thing. As I said, it's got to be like daily habits such as brushing your teeth when you think about putting on a mask. 
We've also got to have more innovation in how to make these social interactions safer. We've, got, we've put down some sort of ground uh, advice and guidance. Just be practical. People are asking. They just want to straight it. Like, you're the chief public health yeah. officer. Do you think okay, people should so be able to go to a different city and, and visit their family yeah. for the holidays? So every individual has a different risk assessment. So one is, what is the look, look at what the local activity is like. Assess your own risk. So if you are someone with an underlying medical condition or you're elderly, there are different choices that you're going to have to make. Three is to keep your family safe, keep the numbers low. I think this Christmas is not going to be the same as Christmas 2019. This is a different kind of Christmas. And I, you know, reducing the number of contacts is very, very important. And our thanks to Dr. Teresa Tam for joining us this week on the program. Coming up next, U.S. voter turnout in advanced and mail-in voting is at an all-time high. Will this favor Joe Biden and the Democrats, or are they in for another upset like back in 2016? Former Democratic Congresswoman Donna Edwards is our special guest next on The Scrum. As we break that down, stay right here with Question Period. So America votes on Tuesday, but what are the biggest factors that might determine the outcome? Which states, which group of voters will play the determining role? And could the campaign take a final twist? And for Canada, this is obviously a critical election as our U.S. friends are our main trading partner. Is the Canadian government preparing for any outcome? To talk about all that, the scrum is back. Richard Madden is CTV News Washington correspondent. He's been busy. Tanya McCharles is a senior reporter with the Toronto Star in Ottawa. And our special guest is the former Democratic Congresswoman from Maryland, Donna Edwards. Great to have all of you join us. Congresswoman Edwards, great to, let me just start with you. It's great to have you here. What are the key factors in your view that you think will determine the outcome in the final days of this election? Well, I think we can already see from the early vote that's coming in, both mail-in ballots and people showing up at early vote locations, um, it seems that we're going to have probably one of a record voter turnout already. Some numbers in some states are starting to surpass uh, 2016 numbers. I think that's good. I think the people who are showing up, we're seeing a greater turnout among young people, uh, uh, seniors, and these are really strong uh, demographic groups that actually in this election may work to the advantage of former Vice President Joe Biden. But I think it remains to be seen what's going to happen on election day in key states. Will we have a strong voter turnout for um, supporters of President Trump, uh, similar to 2016, when there was that latent Trump vote that just showed up at the polls and really wiped out all the early vote uh, vote numbers. So there's still a lot of volatility. I suspect that it is going to be a closer election than what the polls are showing. Um, but I'm going to give the edge to Joe Biden going in. Yeah, Rich Madden, uh, you're on the ground in Washington. The closing days of the campaign are, are very telling. What are you watching for and what are the campaigns doing to close this thing out? Yeah, well, I'm watching the travel schedule very closely, Evan, and it tells really a story. At this point, it appears that Joe Biden and the Democrats are on offense. They're going into deep red territory like Georgia and Texas. 
these reliably Republican states that are now up in considered in play or competitive. Uh, while you see Donald Trump and his team really on defense, hitting the Great Lakes stakes, the Rust Belt, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, and, and, and Pennsylvania. These are states that Trump needs to retain if he's going to repeat his victory in 2016. But I agree with a congresswoman. I think this is going to be a lot closer than the polls are suggesting. A top Democratic operative suggested if you look at these polls and the spread between Biden and Trump, even though they all suggest Biden is leading at about two or three percentage points, because there are a lot of Trump supporters who are either not responding to polls or who are not being truthful to pollsters. So I think this is going to come down to the wire. Yeah, let me go to you, Tonda. From the Canadian perspective, Canadians watch U.S. elections maybe closer than any other election. It's super consequential. Inside the Prime Minister's office, they've got to be preparing for any outcome. Um, they're very quiet right now. How do they, behind the scenes, prep for any outcome here? Well, look, I think that they are taking the same tack that they took in 2016, and that is they prepared for both a Trump and or a Biden victory. They have a plan for each team. And uh, in a way, uh, as I understand it, this government is looking at if Trump wins the election, in a way, um, while there is, uh, I guess, a continuation of the chaos and unpredictability from the administration, in a way that is a known quantity to them and they have contacts within the administration that they can reach out to. But in a way, it's the devil they know. Joe Biden, on the other hand, represents, I think, a, a a more predictable partner for the Trudeau government on a number of files, multilateralism, uh, foreign policy files, on the environment and climate change. However, it poses a different kind of a challenge. Um, a friendlier Joe Biden administration also has very aggressive climate change plans, and that threatens the Canadian energy sector here. It also cross-cuts a whole bunch of his other policies, infrastructure, um, you name it. Uh, Joe Biden's aggressive climate change action plan will challenge the Trudeau government and, and Canada because it, it's a very heavy, heavily oriented towards a bi-American uh, policy, and that will be on all kinds of things. And Canada will have a real job to get its foot in the door in the U.S. in a lot of uh, in a lot of sectors now where they actually do have access. Yeah, for sure. Buy American becomes a big deal. Um, let me swing back domestically because we're all trying to figure this out, Congresswoman. Uh, there's a lot of issues that are cross-cutting. You got the COVID pandemic the economy, you've got issues of uh, race relations in the United States. Of all that, what, in your view, is the ballot box question, or are there different ballot box questions in different parts of the country? Well, I think both in different parts of the country, the questions are different, and also among different demographic groups. You know, for example, on uh, race relations, there can be no doubt um, that there will be Democrats showing up at the poll, particularly black and brown Democrats showing up at the polls, saying we can't tolerate any more of what we perceive as a, a, a racist a, a agenda. There will be um, women showing up at the polls saying, you know, we're tired of the misogyny. Um, there will be seniors and others, many voters actually showing up at the polls saying, we know that we have to, in order to get our economy back on track, we really have to deal with COVID and Donald Trump has had a really ineffective and incompetent response to COVID. And we look frankly to our neighbors in the North and say, my gosh, they've managed to handle the, uh, the COVID crisis. Why haven't we? And I think there are gonna be voters um, for whom that is gonna be a number one issue.
Yeah, and finally, Tonda, let me just swing back to you. We got a lot of Canadians living there. The border issue is a fundamental issue here. I mean, Canadians, again, they're, they're watching this very closely. Um, what do you think the, the, the issue that most impacts Canadians, that Canadians are most paying attention to in the, an issue, you know, an election that the whole world's watching? Look, I think that most Canadians understand that Canada's economic well-being is very closely tied to the U.S. economic well-being. And I think for many, many Canadians, that's what they want to see. They want to see a United States get back on its feet, manage the COVID crisis, get its industries back on their feet, and because our well-being is tied to it. And for, I think, most Canadians, they're not thinking that there's going to be a surge at the border or we'll have to airlift Canadians out of you know, widespread unrest in the U.S. That's not going to happen. I think most Canadians have a realistic sense that uh, the U.S. can manage this. And I think that you hear that from actually the Trudeau government. The Prime Minister said last week he's hoping for a smooth transition or a clear, a clear result or a smooth transition. And I think that his government has confidence that is going to happen. I got to leave it there. I want to thank you, Congresswoman Edwards, Richard Madden, and Tonda McCharles. I thank all of you for watching us today. And be sure to tune in on Tuesday night to CTV News, The American Election 2020. On CTV News Channel, our coverage begins at 7 p.m. Eastern and on the main CTV network at 8 p.m. Eastern with chief anchor and senior editor Lisa Laflamme. And Rich and I will be there with a great team. That's question period for this Sunday. If it's safe to do so, hug your loved ones. I'll see you on CTV News Channel at 5 p.m. on Monday night on Power Play, and we'll see you back here in seven short days.